It's been five years since I last worked with today's guests. While it seems like only yesterday, much has happened since then, both in our careers and in the media marketplace. It's a fascinating time in media. Fragmentation and choice continue to rise while the power of data drives marketing decisions in ways we've never seen before. Today's guests have spent their careers harnessing this power, interpreting it, and advising marketers on how to best use it to make more meaningful engagements with consumers. I've had the great pleasure of working with both of these gentlemen and always found them to be two of the nicest and smartest guys in the business. They are Howard Schimmel and Michael Strober, and this is Back by Popular Demand. Guys, welcome to the podcast. I haven't seen either of your mugs in, in quite some time, not since my, my time in Atlanta, right? I guess that was the last time I saw you, Howard. So was that six years ago? Howard, you always make me laugh. It's funny. I was thinking about this. Um, when I published my second episode, what I do is I set out an email blast to let everybody know uh, that a new episode is available. And I apologize in advance to everybody that is getting an email that they didn't ask for, but um, such as marketing. And that's the way, that's the world we live in. But I set it for um, 8 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. So my email blast goes out while I'm in LA. It's already it's going out while I'm still sleeping. So I remember the morning after, I think it was the second episode. I remember the morning after I, I woke up and I got an email from Howard. And you're like, what am I going to come on and talk addressable? It was just very simple, very direct, very to the point. And I was like, I love it. Like You're inviting yourself on and it's fantastic. And here you are. Um, it's funny. Like The last episode I just did... Um, it was about my earlier part of my career where I was working in movie marketing. And I talked about how I dressed up as, as Turbo Man from the Schwarzenegger movie Jingle All the Way. And now we're doing a deep dive on addressable. So I definitely think we're, uh, we're swimming in the deeper end of the pool <laughs> in this episode. So guys, we worked together for several years at Turner, which is now called Warner Media. Uh, Howard, you are the chief research officer at Turner. And Mike, you are uh, EVP Client Strategy and Ad Innovation. Um, I definitely worked with Howard more than you because uh, he and I reported into the same person. But um, I always tend to see you whenever I came to New York and certainly at all the ad sales offsites. But guys, I would love to hear a little bit more about what you've been doing lately. You guys have amazing reputations in the marketplace. Um, Howard, I'll start with you. Give us uh, a deep dive on what you're up to. And then Michael, feel free to do the same. I've been gone from Turner nearly three years. Um, made a conscious decision to try to leave before the merger. Um, been running my own consulting company, doing a lot in the research, measurement, um, data, um, technology space, uh, and it's been fabulous. I, you know, I, I love. Um, I actually found that I love being able to consult with lots of different clients at the same time. You know, spread my spread my uh, the the benefit of my wealth of uh, knowledge around, um, you know, recently Michael and I have started to do some stuff together. You know, we had a great relationship working together at Turner. Um, so yeah. And, um, life is good. Survive COVID. Okay. First shot a week ago, last one in three weeks. So, uh, you know, everything is great. Thank you. Um, Mike, what have you been up to lately? Give us the, uh, give us hey, the Dennis, Listen, first of all, you look great. I think, I think LA is treating you well. Thank but you. I appreciate that. It's just the lighting in here. It's just all, <laughs> <It's that> all. <laughs> well, listen, I, 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 again, having worked with you and Howard, um, you know, those, I look back at those days uh, with great, great fondness. Um, 
Yep. We're, we're in a new world right now. And I think what's really interesting, um, just like Howard, when I left Warner Media and I had some time to think and take off some time to think about what my next step was, uh, I was invited in to work on a, on a project. I never had consulting in my purview. Um, but as Howard quickly discovered, I actually enjoyed it. And so since then, I actually formed my own consulting practice called Top Water Advisory Group. Uh, I'm actually teamed up with uh, a partner who actually consulted for us while we were at Turner together. Howard actually made the introduction. And uh, she and I have been working together now for the better part of two years. Uh, our primary focus is really helping clients navigate this new changing landscape, uh, really focused around go-to-market strategy, helping them with um, monetization and new and new revenue um, models, as well as getting involved with data and optimization and that's actually one of the things why, with how it's referenced, um, we've been actually working closely together just even before we went on our own. Uh, we've always had the aspiration that one day with the like-mindedness of Howard, myself, and others from WarnerMedia, we should try to get a band together and, uh, and start, start a group. And uh, I'm actually pleased to announce that we are actually on that path. We are thinking about forming an advanced analytics company. Um, I think that that decision was only strengthened by the experience we had as we went out uh, in our consulting uh, jobs, that there really is a dearth of, of really well-executed uh, data science and analytics in the media space today. And uh, we think there's a huge opportunity there. So we're going to uh, pull a few members of the Warner Media team. We're happy we have one of the uh, former chief data scientists that was also uh, instrumental in building a lot of our capabilities that is also interested in joining us. So we're, we're excited. And uh, you know, on, on Top Water, we've been fortunate to have some really great media clients and, and industry partners to uh, to help, you know, entrust us with their business. So that's what we've been doing. That's exciting. I feel like you just dropped like a piece of big news in this podcast. And if you need me to sign a waiver or something like that, just, you know, <laughs> just let me know. Um, what categories are you guys working with as consultants right now? You don't necessarily need to mention your clients, um, but are there like certain categories you're focusing on more than others? Look, one of the things that has happened in the last 10 years is, um, you know, there's been this just giant pipeline of data available. Everybody has data um, yep. and, and everybody thinks data is, you know, they, the data they're sitting on is a gold mine that's going to somehow reinvent the industry. Um, you know, I mean, you think about it now, your phone tells marketers your location, right? You know, you turn on your smart TV Suddenly now your smart TV is reporting what you're watching. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time working with companies who have data, trying to figure out their best, the best industry application of their data and how it could be sort of incremental to what's available in the marketplace. Yep. Um, also been spending a fair amount of time in the connected TV space because, you know, obviously this was going on before COVID, but the last year has really re, um, you know, significantly increased the amount of time people are spending with connected TVs. Absolutely. Whether it's Roku, whether it's Pluto, Peacock. And, you know, one of the challenges those guys have is they're an island onto themselves, but they need to be seen in the greater media landscape. So I've been spending a lot of time with a couple of um, connected TV companies just helping them to understand the linear market, understand what marketers need, and how do you build thought leadership and add products to help address those? 
It's funny that you just referenced Roku. I think I just read it might have even been this morning that they just had like a record quarter, didn't they? They had a record quarter. Um, You know, they're now getting into the original content space. They bought some of Quippy stuff. They actually announced today they're creating um, like an an integrated ad sales marketing group where they may create custom ads for advertisers. Um, Yeah, they're, they're, you know, they are a company that's growing pretty quick. Michael, any particular categories that are, are of interest to you more than others? Yeah, I mean, listen, my background has largely been focused not only in ad sales, but specifically leveraging data and analytics to drive new sources of uh, revenue for the company. So that's sort of the swim lane that you know I'm most comfortable with. It's also where I think there's the greatest opportunity. We have a lot of clients that are getting further and further into the advanced advertising space. Um, and they're building out departments. And so we're helping them, whether it be anything from thinking of, as I said, their go-to-market strategy and how they um, want to take their products to market, whether it be through product development or positioning, uh, to you know more advanced analytic-based models like revenue monetization and, uh, and thinking through some of the, the pricing strategies that they employ. Um, we've also worked with clients really helping them formulate a data strategy and how they should you know, think about, you know, as Howard said, uh, the quality of the data, the data that they subscribe to, um, how they should, you know, amass their own first-party data. So there's there's a huge amount of opportunity uh, in in those areas, and so that's where we seem to have uh, uh, been spending most of our our time. And and you know, one one other big area is clearly around addressable. Uh, there's yep. a lot of people with questions around that. Um, it's it's great to see so many other uh, providers creating the enablement. Um, whether it be the MVPDs or or the OEMs with the, the smart set TVs, but there's a lot of uh, you know these people who who are really in a position to make a lot of these key decisions have their day jobs, and then on top of it, they have to learn all this new way of doing business. And so I think they look to consultants like Howard and myself to help them navigate this and, and try to make some sense of uh, what what's going on. Well, it's my privilege to have you guys on. If I were a boxer, I think I'd be in a different weight class than you guys. You guys are you guys are titans. I'm glad you brought up addressable and, and advanced TV because that's really what I want to spend the bulk of this discussion about today. But before we drill into the specifics, I guess let's talk big picture for a minute. You know, you guys are spending a lot of time with various clients, and you know what what are the what are the main things that you know what are the biggest challenges I should say our marketers facing today? What, what's keeping them up at night the most? Is it the, this use of data? Well, you know, Dennis, I think it's actually, and, and you'll you'll appreciate this based on you know where you've spent your career. You know, I think marketers are are are, are sort of caught in the dilemma of they know they need to build brands. Um, you know, they need to really focus on getting a lot of people in the top of the funnel and worry about things like awareness and consideration and things like that. Yeah. Um. But but they're also, I think, um a little bit enamored by what what the consumer brands have done, which has really done a really good job of managing the bottom of funnel. So, you know, they're, they're sort of at this place where, um, you know, 15 years ago, building great amounts of national reach for a brand was pretty easy, right? You bought some network, you bought some cable, you bought People magazine and a couple other magazines. And you probably had a plan that reached 80% of the country, you know, five times in a month. Yep. And now getting national reach is really, really hard because of sort of the fragmentation. You could still get it. It's just, you know, you have to put the, puzzle, the pieces of a puzzle together. 
Um, and also then there's so much great data and technology that allows you to sort of drive short-term sales lift. So I think, you know, there's this sort of the split thinking of <clears throat> what do I do and how do I make sure I'm being balanced in my approach? Um, you know, I, because the way they use data is just an enablement once you've sort of made that decision. There was just one last thing, and I'll let Michael jump in. There was some research published by, um, published in the UK um, by DDB um, Needham, Adam and Eve. They're a big agency there. Um, and they look to see what drives successful campaigns. And it turns out reach is the number one variable. And that when they looked at the impact of sort of short-term burst sales campaigns, you're able to get, you know, you're able to sort of drive a little bit of short-term gain, but it goes away and it doesn't contribute to brand health. So I think they're just sort of, the, the biggest thing is figuring out how do you balance both? Because you got to do both. You can't, if you only focus on the top of funnel and you miss your quarterly earnings, that's a bad thing. If you only focus on the bottom of funnel and you forget about the top and driving brand, that's a bad thing too. So that's where I think a lot of marketers are stuck today. I mean, Michael, you know, when you were at Turner, you you were clearly dealing with clients all the time, given the fact that you sat in the sales organization. And, you know, for me, it, it always felt like right before I left Turner, that Turner Ad Sales was getting a lot more into guaranteed outcomes, right? Where they wanted to make sure that our, our, our suite of tools and services and, and clearly the audiences that we deliver are going to help predict um, action for, for these consumers. And I guess today that seems to be what I, what I see is that, you know, marketers want to deliver these personalized experiences to uh, consumers and have that one-on-one -on -one relationship. But is that, is that how you see it today too? Is that what you're hearing from your various clients? Yeah, no, I, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, let me, let me parse that out. Cause I think when we use the term outcomes, I think sometimes or guaranteeing outcomes, there's different interpretations of that. Um, I do believe with with the advances that are happening in television today, uh, and we'll get into advanced TV at some point, I would imagine, um, that that affords greater precision and allows a marketer to, and the publisher, the programmer, to deliver commercials to a more relevant, targeted audience. And as a result of that, you expect that you, you get some a larger uh, behavioral result, whether it be you know somebody going online and, and searching the company's website, or going into the you know traffic uh, into you know footsteps into the showroom um, foot traffic, not footsteps. Um, and so I think I think there's definitely a push to guarantee on outcomes, but I still think we're a ways away before that becomes standard. Uh, there are still very there are a lot of other uh, other variables outside of a programmer's control. So I think. To guarantee, certainly to guarantee sales, I think would be wildly off base, at least for now, because there's just too much. Um, but can you go beyond a straight impression to some other behavior metric? Absolutely. And I think you're seeing more and more clients. They also have to, those clients have to be willing to share some of that data back to us. Uh, and so there's there's that component as well. But, you know, listen, I think this is all moving in the right direction. I think everybody uh, is starting to truly understand the value uh, of how data plays a role um, in television advertising. Um, and I think we learned a lot of, you know, some good practices from digital that could be transferred over. Um, uh, but it's taken, you know, listen, we, we started the advanced TV practice 
at Turner probably now, gosh, it's about seven or eight years ago. Um, and you know, I'm still kind of amazed how, you know, how slow it's taken for, for this to catch on when you think, you know, it's the best thing since sliced bread. I apparently I'm reminded that even sliced bread took 17 years to, to gain adoption. So who knows, maybe, maybe we could do it in less than 17 years. Based on what I'm hearing from you guys, there's definitely this shift from, you know, targeting programs, um, to targeting audiences, right. Based on, you know, the interests and habits and, and demographics that, um, that the data suggests. Um, and you know, while streaming is definitely getting a, the lion's share of, of the headlines right now, understandably there's, there's many launches, which we're going to talk a, lo- a little bit about later, but clearly marketers and their agencies are leaning more and more into what I would call advanced television and, and addressable television. Um, not all of my listeners are media geeks and nerds like we are. So, um, I don't want to scare them off, so we should try to break this down into layman's terms. Who wants to take a shot at explaining what addressable is today? Well, well, the easiest way is to think about the internet. Think about your, you know, everybody's digital experience. You know, right now, if everybody listening to this podcast opened up their browser and went to ESPN.com, we would all see a different ad. Yep. Right, and that ad is based on your browsing history based on, you know, where you may have shopped, you know, where where you may have put something in the basket for a retailer and, and not completed that transaction. Um, it would have, um, you know, potentially based on um, some other things like estimates of who, you know, who you are, you, you know, where you live, things like that. Um, you know, and really what advanced television is trying to do is bring those capabilities to the big screen TV in your living room, in your den, in your basement. Um, you know, I, I think marketers understand that TV generally is a very powerful medium. You know, it's big, you know, big creative ads, sight, sound, and motion, um, generally, uh, you know, a fraud-proof environment. Um, but one of the challenges of the the old TV model that we all lived with is that um, everybody saw the same ad around the country, right? So if we all turned on ESPN right now, we'd all see the same BMW ad, whatever they're airing right now. Yep. So the whole idea about advanced TV is to be able to take the power of television, but bring digital targeting capabilities using data to that delivery as a way to sort of reduce, you know, one of, one of, as a way to eliminate waste. I mean, I, I always use the example, I will not walk into a fast food restaurant again in, in my life. It's just not a part of my eating habits, right? So if McDonald's or Burger King or Kentucky Fried Chicken could avoid um, impressions towards me, it's going to improve their ROI. So it's basically being able to enable those capabilities. Michael, anything you want to add to that? You know, I mean, I think Howard did a good job describing it. I would probably just pull back and and I, I look at addressable as a form of advanced TV. I think advanced TV or advanced television really is the sort of umbrella term that yep. captures, you know, not just addressable, but interactivity. Um, you know, when you, when you think about advanced TV, and I'm talking about interactive television, connected TV, smart TVs, you know, linear addressable, that's that's sort of the the meta category. Um, and each anything under there, there's really three core value um, pillars that are usually associated with with advanced TV. 
Uh, and that's, you know, basically one around engagement. You see this actually, I think, demonstrated very well on Hulu, where you have you know, new, new forms of interactive ads and um, ways to consume the content without as many interruptions. There's new forms of measurement around advanced TV, and that's where we talk a lot about data and, and some of the new capabilities around that. And the last one is the targeting, and that's what I think Howard was referring to, which is you know the ability now to layer in not just the viewership data, but also behavioral characteristics or, or data sets that can combined allow you to target on an audience versus the traditional demo. So when I sit with clients, you know, and they ask me about advanced TV, we describe it as it's everything that non-traditional TV is. And, and from there, we kind of drill down into their specific needs. I mean, I'm, I'm rather envious of it. You know, as an entertainment marketer, you know, our job was to always go after people that, you know, hopefully are going to watch our shows. If I was at Turner working with you guys, we wanted people to watch TNT. And I remember back, you know, even just going back maybe 10 years, not even, you know, we would have to, if someone said we need to buy The Walking Dead on AMC because we think that's the right audience for this particular show, we would try to reach out and, and place a 30 second spot. You know, a lot of times the networks weren't even going to take that spot because we're a competitor. Sometimes they'd say, yeah, you can buy it locally, but not nationally. It's very, very complicated. But today, based on, you know, the, the data that's available, you can you can identify that Walking Dead fan without even buying the Walking Dead. You can certainly just look at their habits and their viewing trends and and, you know, put together a schedule theoretically, right, that can target based on their interests without even having to buy the actual show itself. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's definitely one. That's one capability that, you know, digital has had for a long time. Right. You could always let me find the CNN.com audience someplace off site where I may be able to find those people cheaper. But yeah, though that that capability now exists for television. So a lot of a lot of precision targeting certainly eliminates waste. Um, what are some of the, I guess I would call, you know, the negatives of of addressable right now, Michael? First of all, addressable has I mean it exists, right? I mean you you in TV, uh, local carriers, whether it be the MVPDs or the satellite companies, they have been making addressable an offering for close to a decade. Yep. I think the big challenge now is on national with national programmers like TNT and TBS who have anywhere from 10 to 14 minutes of commercial time. How can we enable that inventory where you're not broadcasting it one to many, but literally being able to target to a, an individual household um, the same way they do it um, in the local inventory that the MVPDs and, and companies like Dish and DirecTV have. So, um, so that's what's really exciting. It's actually, I would say we're in the, probably the second year, it's still very early innings. Um, and there's a lot of coordination. There's a lot of like just infrastructure and, you know, I mean, it, there's a whole continuum and Howard could probably speak to it better between the data and the technology and the ad serving. I mean, that have to all come together and you keep in mind, we're doing this for over a hundred million households. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to strive for. Um, and there's a, a whole ecosystem that has to be wired together. So I think the biggest challenge right now is just getting more and more of the, the plumbing and the pipes and the infrastructure in place. And then there's the business models that have to sit on top of that. And then there has to be the consumer and the marketplace demand. So all those things have to happen. And we're seeing it moving in the right direction. But again, things are not happening as quick as I think everyone would like to see happen. I read something in eMarket the other day that said addressable TV ad spending will increase 75% to just over $3.5 billion by next year. Um, so clearly the industry is adopting that shift. But um, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So are the dollars being shifted to addressable from other media? I think there's not one set answer to that. I think if you were talking to the head of sales of a, you know, of a TV OEM, 
they would say that some money is coming from linear and some money is coming from other forms of digital? The way I, I might look at it as, as an ad salesperson, um, right now, unfortunately, if you look at the supply of linear inventory, it's declining double digits. I mean, who the hell knows what's going to be just before this year's up front, right? We're probably looking at anywhere from 10 to 15%, maybe even higher in terms of just a decline in viewership. There is more money overall, I think, going against linear television than they could they could support. Yep. And listen, I don't think it's in the nature or interest of publishers and programmers to want to keep jamming them on price. They have to. It's just a pure supply, you know, of economics, law of economics, right? Supply and demand. I think the, the part of the rush to addressable is the ability then to create expansion of inventory. And, and, and listen, they're doing that with their OTT serve products and they're doing it with, you know, all the consumer touch points that they have on a, on a digital basis. But even in those, they're not able to, I mean, if you really think about it, there's still 90% of the viewership that is happening still occurs on the large TV. It's just that it's getting smaller and smaller each year. And I think the networks are really grappling with the fact, how do I, you know, I have more money being registered. How do I park this and not do it purely just because I'm going to get it on price, but how could I increase the supply of my inventory? I could, I could try to use my streaming services and leverage all my car screens, but I think addressability affords them the opportunity now to expand their units, expand their amount of impressions and be able to monetize it and not have to go, um, you know, not necessarily have to charge a publish a, an advertiser a sizable amount of budget when they can get the amount of audience that they want for a more efficient price. I want to talk about um, which brand categories, I guess, are most receptive to it. But let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll come right back. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by The Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. That just makes me smile. Those who know me will tell you how much I respect Animal Rescue, and I adore my two boxer rescues, Sammy and Gabby. And trust me when I say that they love their waffle bed. My dog dad stock went up big time when their waffle arrived. Whether I'm watching a favorite movie, a baseball game, or listening to music, one of them is always lounging on their waffle, gnawing away on their favorite shark chew toy. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. The beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. It looks brand new every time I wash it. Look, you love your dogs. I sure love mine. And we'll pretty much do anything in the world for them. So get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night. And that should make you sleep better at night. Order them at waffleco.com. It's spelled just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Again, that's waffleco.com. And as a thank you to listening to this podcast, be sure to use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount on your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the pod. All right, guys, so... Talk to me about the categories that are most receptive to you know spending ad dollars in the addressable space. Are you seeing it across the board? Is it pretty much any category is, is open to it or are certain ones more than others really kind of doubling down? It's funny because you have this 
challenge of what categories have great data available to target. Yep. And also then you have the challenge of, you know, what are what are brands typical linear TV based CPMs, right? So the general, you know, the old wives tale is that consumer packaged goods, while they have great data to target because, um, you know, companies like Catalina have made point of sales data, you know, frequent shopper loyalty card data available to use in targeting. But, you know, because they've, you know, they're such, such big advertisers and they, um, you know, they have such low linear TV bases, they've been more leery about making the move to addressable and being willing to pay the addressable CPMs. Um, you know, typically it's been automotive, travel, financial services, things like that. But but one of the things, and, and Michael, jump in here, one of the things that where this industry still is having a hard time thinking about the new world and the, and the old world together is one thing you read in the press a lot is advertisers don't want to go to addressable because the CPMs are too high. And what they're doing is they're comparing a targeted CPM in addressable or OTT or connected TV to a age sex demographic CPM in linear. Yeah. And that's like comparing a euro and a dollar and saying it's more expensive for me to have the same meal if I pay with euros versus dollars. It's not true. And and you know the, the industry just needs to you know, while there's a lot of good work in, in agencies trying to be more integrated around the way they go to market, we got to get to a place where we're talking the same language across all of television. It's funny. I uh, I remember this conversation I had when I was on a sales call back at at, at Warner, um, and this was a gentleman who was the head of a, a an addressable buying agency, and he said, "Here's the thing: if your product costs under five dollars, meaning." A, a Snickers bar, you know, if your product costs less than $5 to a consumer and you're trying to reach at least 30%, if not more of the country, and you have really, really low historical CPMs, addressable is not going to work for you. So, I mean, look at all the categories, but those are typically the ones who are going to shy away from that. The same thing to Howard's point about CPG, although I think you can still make an argument because we're talking about addressable purely from a targeting sense. There's all the use cases for addressable. It could be sequential messaging, could be about free, you know, frequency management. So uh, we won't go there, but but there are other use cases. We're, I know, largely talking around targeting. Um, I also think we're adding in, I mean, certainly the marketers know this. I think for the media sales organizations, they're getting more comfortable with a new nomenclature. We're talking about lifetime value of a consumer. We're talking about customer acquisition costs. You know, These are things that certainly every marketer is keenly aware of. And if you have, let's say, of us, a, a, a mobile carrier where it takes you know anywhere from four to six hundred dollars to acquire a new consumer. Well, that's a pretty high customer acquisition cost. Addressable makes a lot of sense, and you'll see companies like that working there. Automotive, very big and addressable. Um, you know, so I think you're you know when you start thinking through beyond just the traditional age, sex, demo CPMs, you start to open up the aperture of why addressable works, the different uses for it. Um, you'll find, you know, different categories certainly gravitating to over others. Um, I think direct to consumer, these guys are not living so much, you know, especially those that are, you know, relatively young and in, in their corporate formation don't have that legacy bias. And they, they don't understand why they would ever guarantee on a traditional demo. They would 
want to do addressable. They would want to guarantee an outcome. They, they have a whole different mindset and approach to media and TV. I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that it's a very cluttered marketplace, um, the addressable, the addressable space, and that there are many players involved. And you know, obviously, all the the media companies like Warner Media and others, you know, they all have their own ad sales solutions. And Michael, you were instrumental in, in bringing those to marketplace. But beyond that, there's a, you know, there's a slew of of third party opportunities that marketers can take advantage of. So, how does like if I'm a if I'm an agency guy, if I'm a, a media planner today, like how do I sort through all those players, because clearly some are going to, they all promise different things, right? But some are going to bring other things to the table. But how do you, how do you make sense of all of it? You, you call Howard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first step is, is the planning stage, right? And, you know, you got a budget, you're, you know, you're, you're being handed, you know, um, $25 million to spend in off channel marketing to, to, to launch a show. And, you know, the first question you need to ask, and it's a much harder one to answer now than it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago, is, all right, what do I need to buy to, um, you know, to achieve my reach goals? And 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 it's a place where actually, um, and, and we will not, um, you know, we will not diss Nielsen at all during this call. Um, but, um, you know, it's a place where, Nielsen and others have have sort of let the industry down because there is no way to to really um, centralized plan across all of the different options and and if you think about it the options are linear it's Hulu it's Roku it's Pluto it's Peacock and you know so the, so the first big challenge you have is how do you plan the next the next issue is how do you execute and actually I think. The industry is actually further along about uh, in terms of being able to execute. You know, you have companies, you know, companies like the Trade Desk, where you could go and find all of this inventory together and execute a deal and then optimize it in flight and then measure impressions on the back end. So I think you got to sort of separate separate out those two pieces. You know, Nielsen announced something in December, this initiative they call Nielsen One. It's yep. their attempt to try to solve it, but you have other, you know, companies like 605 and VideoAmp and um, Amobi who are trying to solve it. The industry needs much more help on this now than than I think is available. There was a conversation I was having with a former buyer, and I said, "Remember when March used to be the uh, the development sort of roadshow?" where you would go out to the West Coast and the networks would parade out all their new uh, pilots that they have in the pipeline. Well, in the last month, I think two major media companies, Disney and NBCU, hosted uh, developer conferences. So we went from development, where it was all about the content and programming, and that still is key, but we're now adding another new component, which is around uh, technology, you know, tech showcases, developer uh Programs and and I think it just speaks to the commitment that a lot of these companies have to make beyond just producing great content is they got to build up that that technical stack to be able to deliver it and operate. But but Michael, you know that that actually points to something that actually really really scares me about the future of our industry because, um, you know, targeting is great, you know, and obviously eliminating waste is great. But there is the role of the content you're watching. 
right? And and things like programmatic aren't really trained to say a spot in March Madness is better than a spot in the NIT tournament, right? You know, and and you know, I worry that as an industry where we're so hyper focused on targeting and eliminating waste. If we do that and we don't let the value of, of, of media company program investments and, and the value of the audience engagement that they create get paid off, how does, it, how does content get funded in the future, right? If, you know, is it all going to be based on subscription services and primetime NBC in 20 years is going to be shows that have lived on Peacock before? Howard, that's a really good point. And I, let me jump onto that before Michael answers. But I think, you know, from an entertainment marketing perspective, it, that's that's one of the questions we've always wrestled with, right? Is all about the efficiency versus, I guess, maybe the environment and how important is that environment? Because entertainment marketers, by and large, like to think that environment still matters. Hence why I referenced Walking Dead earlier, right? Because if, if you're a TNT show and and you're on a big spot inside the Walking Dead finale, then it, you're you're sending a message to the consumer, to the viewer, that this is a show that's worth your time, right? I watched the Golden Globes a few weeks ago, and I and I saw FX on Hulu run a really a really beautiful you know brand spot. I think other streamers did as well, and and I remember placing one in the Golden Globes last year for FX on Hulu. So um, I think they still think that those kinds of environments are are very important, at least for the, some of those bigger kinds of TV events, right? If it's the Super Bowl or a playoff game or an award show, but um, again, you know, maybe not as efficient as as certainly, you know, s- sending your message out via addressable. Michael, you're nodding. Yeah, I mean, I'm in, in complete agreement. I, I think, and and we all listen. We all work for media companies. Content still matters, and it's, it is essential. What what I'm most interested in is helping those media companies be able to afford the same quality exceptional content that they've been known to produce. If you look at it right now, they're they're facing a lot of headwinds. And so by coming up and using technologies and advanced advertising and addressability is really in the in the pursuit of allowing those programmers the ability then to take the in the the proceeds of those ad sales yep. to invest back into the content. Because at the end of the day, consumers are coming to programming and content not because they think this company is going to have the best targeted ads for me. And so what we want to do is make sure that we're, we're allowing those media companies to have the, the, the rigor and the opportunity to be able to reinvest that. I mean, how much did the NFL just go for? I mean, think about the licensing rights just for the NFL. You know, I think collectively the, the league was over a hundred billion dollars. You know, you hear Netflix and, 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 and eight, I mean, uh, NBC thinking about how much money they're committing to between the Olympics and all their prime programming. So I just want to see them be able to develop great content for consumers to want to continue engaging. And to do that, we look at a lot of the services that we're providing as a means to that end. So this is a perfect time for us to segue into streaming. Um, you know, Howard, you referenced that earlier that, you know, these linear networks today and, you know, we've all worked at them um, are struggling. And, you know, there's been an explosion in the streaming space, particularly over the last couple of years. You know, just to go through my notes here, we got, you know, Disney Plus just announced that they reached over 100 million subs. Didn't take them very long to do it. Paramount Plus just launched um, on the heels of Discovery Plus. HBO Max is launching its ad supported uh, product this summer. You know, Michael, you just referenced Peacock and and the Olympics that are coming later this later this year. How do you guys see this all shaking out? I mean, I know that in the past we've we've seen stats that say the average consumer, 
is willing to subscribe to maybe three, possibly four streaming services, but there's clearly more than three or four in the market. So um, I'm not asking you to predict the future, but how do you see this um, taking shape? You know, you you have to look at it holistically for the consumer's total entertainment bundle. Um, You know, there's still 80 million homes who subscribe to linear TV or to cable TV or a virtual provider like Hulu or YouTube. Um, You know, and then and then a lot of those people are also then putting Netflix and and other things on top of it. Um, One of the things that was sort of really interesting and Michael referenced the NFL was, you know, the so many of the Wall Street analysts wrote that because the Thursday night NFL package is going to be Amazon only. And and the only way you're going to watch it on broadcast is if you're in one of the team markets, the markets, you know, that, that that was going to be like the next nail in the coffin of the cable bundle, right? That, you know, because there were a lot of Wall Street analysts who basically think, and, and I think they're fairly right about this, that the only thing that's keeping keeping the cable bundle alive right now is professional sports and live news. Yep. Um, you know, it is, you know, I think it's safe to say that there is great entertainment type programming on Netflix and HBO Max and Hulu and the others. Um, you know, the the other thing that's sort of interesting is um, you know, everybody has a story of when they tried to call, you know, Comcast and cancel and they were kept online for an hour and, you know, Comcast did whatever they can or Altice did whatever they can to to um, um, to to keep the customer. These services are all set up to allow easy entry points and easy en- exit points come back. And I, you know, I think one of the things you're going to have is over time, you have, maybe there are three or four but that depends upon what shows you're engaged in. Yep. And, you know, maybe that, you know, when um, Mandalorian is over on Disney Plus, you cancel for six months and you try something else. So, you know, it, it, it really is early. Um, it's really hard to sort of see how this is going to play out. Um, but But look, you know, at the end of the day, the consumer is benefiting from this because there's more great content available on on the television screen now, it is harder to figure out what's on where and know what to watch. Uh, but but the consumer really benefits now. Yeah, I mean, I think they're to your point about having the um, the consumer potentially you know drop out of the uh, out of the service after a show like Mandalorian and potentially leave Disney Plus. But these platforms are making it awfully hard for the consumer to leave. And I think you know if you look at you know, I think I read this morning that Disney uh, Disney announced that Black Widow was going to be released in theaters as well as on Disney Plus, right? Obviously for thirty dollars, but still you have the opportunity. And clearly, you know, Warner Brothers made a lot of headway uh, this past year when they announced that they're going to have their movies re- be released in theater as well as on on HBO Max. But um, it's just making this situation, Michael, even that much more complicated. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, listen, I, I'm fascinated by the whole streaming. I mean, this will be a perfect business school case study um you know at first at first blush i don't see how the economics support the business moving from the traditional linear to streaming i mean obviously they need to make money on you know through the subscriptions because they're going to lose it to your point on the cable bundle they're also reducing the commercial load because consumers who are conditioned to watching streaming services particularly non-ad supported ones 
are not going to sit through eight, 12 minutes worth of, of commercials. So it, it really comes down to, you know, less inventory. So therefore we need to extract a higher CPM so that we can get more for that inventory. Um, I don't know. I don't know how all the math adds up. Obviously, there's smarter people at, at the heads of these companies that are thinking through this. The fact is they have no other choice, though, because this is where the consumer is going. Yeah. And so they need to follow where, where, the, where the consumer is. And um, I think in a few years, you're going to see probably a lot of these companies having to consolidate or roll in with others. I think it's just, you know, I mean, Disney is undeniable. I mean, the fact that they've exceeded their target of 100 million subs uh, and, and listen, it all started because they their strategy was to corral the greatest stable of content out there. I mean, they were brilliant. They acquired Pixar. They acquired Marvel. They, you know, they then they bought Fox. Um, and so they started from that premise and then they launched their technology on top of it. And I think and they understand the importance of the data and the first party data. So that's an amazing company. You see Peacock, I think, also for the most part, has come out. Now they're going to be launching their Avon service. And, you know, I think there's going to be more announcements probably being made um, relative to, to that that offering. But once you start going past the top three to five, you know, I, I worry about some of the smaller streaming services and how they compete and the economics. So, again, um, it's kind of like you have to do this. Um, but I just don't know how many people are going to make it across the finish line. It's so interesting because Wall Street is giving all of these companies a pass for trying, right? I mean, look at look at C- Viacom, CBS. Um, you know, they they great acquisition acquiring Pluto eighteen months ago, whenever that was. Um, you know, good marks for the relaunch of Paramount Plus, since you know, as as the next version of CBS All Access. Their stock over the last three months has gone through the roof. They actually just announced what, that they're going to buy back stock or issue new stock as a way to fund more programming. For Paramount Plus. Yeah, I read that. So, so, you know, Michael, you're right about the economics, but Wall Street has a very interesting way of valuing these companies, which is, I think, the thing that's allowing them to – move from the old model to the new model without having profit pressures on them. Um, so it's really, you know, it look, and, and the dynamic of wall street involvement is going to be something interesting to watch in the future. Yeah. I mean, Howard, you and I talked about this the other day when we mentioned uh, transparency and we were discussing um, a little bit about, you know, I remember in the past, Netflix would was was famous for not reporting its numbers on how many people are watching certain shows. And clearly, you know, the media wants to know that and, and you know, marketers want to know that because they want to know, you know, what, what show to, to hedge their bets against. But I think if you look at what's happening with with HBO Max and Warner Brothers, where the movies are being released not only in theaters, but on HBO Max simultaneously in the past, clearly box office grosses were of public record and people can know right away on on Saturday night or even Sunday that they're, they're going to call it. Hey, it made this much over the weekend. But you don't really know how those movies are necessarily, um, you know, grossing for HBO Max. And you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I I think it's an interesting place in that regard. Yeah, well, especially because, you know, with HBO Max being subscription based and not having an ad business. And, you know, what matters to them now is a piece of content. Does it help them to acquire a new subscriber? Does it help them to keep an, uh, an existing subscriber retained for another month? 
And, and, you know, the audience, you know, look, you know, I'm, I'm having to untrain 40 years of, of experience. Um, but you know, the, the size of the audience just doesn't matter. And the size of the audience at any one point in time doesn't matter. And if, you know, if, 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 if a piece of content generates highly engaged subscribers, that's all they care about. Yeah. Right. And, and so, and, and it is aware, you know, there's definitely dealing with the, the, the market dynamics of, you know, if you're, if you own a piece of content and you license it to Netflix, they have the cards in terms of what that's worth to them. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if something changes in the, in the market to force there to be more transparency around that stuff. I mean, I like to think that if, if you know, if Mulan was was registering enough sales for Disney Plus, they probably would have reported something, right? I mean, you would think. Yep, yep. And 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 look, you know, the the nature of and and we talked in the beginning about you know having great data scientists. Um, you know, there are there the you know the, one of the benefits of all of these services is they have great first party data. You know, they're not dealing with something like Nielsen, which is a sample projected out to the universe and the combination of the first party data with brilliant data scientists, they know all this stuff, you know, they know it every day. It's, you know, it's, it's very simple for them to sort of solve for this. Michael, you know, from an ad sales perspective, given you spent so much time there, you know, one of the things I find interesting is how to, how do marketers crack streaming today? You know, I read something recently about Cobra Kai, you know, that, that popular series, and it clearly got very popular this past year, given the pandemic, but, you know, when Cobra Kai moved from YouTube, where it was a fairly small show, to Netflix, um, there were brands that had, you know, in-show integrations inside Cobra Kai. And, and they've seen a, a pretty massive lift when it moved from YouTube to, um, to Netflix. Do you see other marketers kind of following suit and trying to explore more branded integrations because of that? Absolutely. I mean, this this is definitely an area that you're. I think... If you're a marketer, you're going to, I mean, listen, they've done it before, but, you know, especially in properties like Netflix or Amazon, where you can't, where it's not formatted in a traditional model where you see a pre-roll or a mid-roll commercial, uh, branded integration in those where it seems seamless, as long as it's done artfully, right? It can't be so, 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 so and again, they won't do that in that type of programming environment. I think that's a great way to connect with the audience and and not make it so overt. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, Howard and I were fortunate enough when we were at Warner to launch Turner Ad Lab. And the whole mission was how do we make advertising wanted, needed, and appreciated? And, you know, it doesn't have to be follow the same format that we've lived with for 60 years where, you know, you sit down, you get interrupted from watching the programming, and then, you know, you come back after few minutes back into the content. I think there's more seamless opportunities, new innovations, new ways to connect with consumers uh, on their terms. And I think branded integration, um, especially in the streaming services, is, is going to be a really important part of the equation. I also think it's a, it's a great way for companies like Netflix to tap into a new revenue source that they haven't exactly. had to rely on before. Um, and do you think the, the showrunners of the world are going to be receptive to those kinds of integrations? I'm sure some of them are like, you know, I don't want that for the sake of my art, but others recognize it pays the bills. I, I think so. I mean, you know, especially uh, as, as more and more, um, you know, as the content gets more expensive, it's one way that they're going to help 
be able to to pay for that. So again, that's a business decision. Uh, you know, I think the showrunners are, are going to have to make that judgment based on uh, their craft and and the conviction that they have with their talent and 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 everybody associated with the project. Yeah, and, and Michael, it was great to reference Turner Ad Lab. You know, look, the linear TV. Oh, those were the days, weren't they, Howard? <laughs> those were fun. <laughs> Wasn't that long ago? <laughs> but the linear TV ad model is just not a consumer friendly one, right? You get untargeted ads. You get, you know, what are you know? There are some media companies who, at some point, have ri- have uh, run twenty minutes of non programming time every hour of television. So you got to watch one minute of something else to watch a two minutes of content. I mean, that's just not a great consumer experience. And we knew it a long time ago. The, you know, the economics of the industry just doesn't allow that to change very much. Um, you know, and, and, and one of the things that streaming does enable, and Michael spoke to this before, it does enable less commercial load, targeted commercial load, different ad forms. I mean, Hulu has a binge ad format where if you're watching, you know, five episodes of, of uh, you know, a, a show on FX, the ads are telling a story through the different episodes rather than seeing five of the same. So, you know, this is all, it's all really good for marketers just to give them a much more consumer friendly way to, to, to tell the story to consumers. What do you think the consumer appetite is for for ad free models versus models with 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 advertising? Do you think that they're going to just be like, I don't want to see ads. I'd rather just pay the extra money and have that that seamless experience. I think it's a combination of both. Uh, you know, I think the last I saw, thirty percent of Hulu subs pay the additional subscription fee for the ad free model. Yeah. Uh, look, and I think they um, they benefit from giving people the option. Um, and, and actually, you know, it's funny, there was, um, a couple of years ago, I had lunch with Dave Poltrak, who was the head of research at CBS for a long, long time, fabulous man. And he actually told the story that they made margin on people who bought the ad free version of CBS all access because they would never monetize through advertising the incremental fee they charged for ad free. Right. So I think it's going to be a combination of both. And I think giving consumers a choice is what matters. I Listen, I, I think we, we have done research that demonstrates that ultimately consumers, they don't mind advertising. They don't like a lot of it at once, and they don't want stuff that's not relevant to them. Yep. I mean, and Howard referenced, you know, only 30% of the Hulu subscribers we're opting for the the non-ad supported, the premium version. I think people are willing to listen to listen. We all watch the Super Bowl not just only for the game, but we want to see these 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 commercials. Why can't we make every TV experience feel like the Super Bowl? I mean, that's ultimately what the programming experience is. You're getting the content, and there's a lot of cultural relevance and importance to seeing commercials. I mean, some of these commercials, when you just watch them by themselves, it's art. I mean, it really is. Yes, they're hawking a company's product or service, but it's they're either engaging, they're emotional. We just need to do a better job of serving those to consumers in ways that they can connect with. So I do think the streaming services, they will, like with HBO Max, they will opt in for the ad-supported, but they can't. the programmer can't violate that 
implicit trust that they're going to have a really lousy viewing experience. And I think, listen, I think Jason Killart understands that very well. He's been, you know, beating that drum about it all starts with the consumer. So, in fact, I think they're announcing or they have announced that they'll have probably the lowest commercial load in, in, in streaming. Do you guys, one of you guys referenced uh, the Olympics earlier, just to close the loop on that, but I read yesterday that I think because of the pandemic and, and COVID that Japan will not be allowing in any international travel um, to the Olympic Games, which is obviously completely understandable. But talk about like, what does that mean from a, I guess, from a marketer perspective? Do you feel like there are ramifications of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't speak to the Olympics, how they would react to that. I mean, listen, I, there is certainly value for the activation that happens on the ground at these types of events. Uh, and they certainly, I'm sure, uh, will, will, will miss having that. I think it's understandable. So, and I think there's ways that you, you know, are still supporting a very well, highly regarded global cultural moment. So I think you can still do this. The fact that people aren't necessarily there. I've been really impressed with the creativity and imagination that people have taken to, uh, kind of re reimagine how they conduct their marketing tied to these unfortunate, you know, yep. circumstances. Um, and listen, I think there's going to be a lot of interest from the viewership to watch and tune into this. So, and, you know, NBC does a great job with all the backstories and the human interest side. So I think the viewership is going to be there. Um, I think it's just unfortunate though, for those brands, uh, those global brands that really try to activate uh, on site, uh, they're not going to have that same audience there. It, it definitely is a different experience watching sports with nobody in the stands. I would agree. You know, and, and Super Bowl rating was down a little bit, which I was really baffled by because I thought with sort of the combination of everybody stuck at home, Tom Brady, the inability to go to, you know, a Super Bowl party, I would have, I expected those ratings to be up a lot, but, um, you know, we'll see what happens. But the NFL was sort of down in general this past yeah. season, so maybe that that shouldn't come as a, a huge surprise. Yeah. Howard, while I have you, um, last fall the World Federation of Advertisers unveiled a a framework for cross media measurement, and I guess there's a proposed solution designed to give marketers a a better understanding of their ad efforts. Um, I think the proposal was developed in partnership with Facebook and Google, and I think it's going to be tested in the UK and in the US. Um, talk to me about this. Why is this so significant? So. And look, we've talked about it through the through this um, last hour. Um, you know, the reality is the job of a marketer figuring out how to optimize the ROI of a given budget. Um, you know, and whether that are you know whether their metrics are brand awareness and consideration or their metrics are sales has gotten a lot harder over the last fifteen twenty years, um, and. And marketers' voice, you know, like if you go to a Nielsen client meeting, yeah, a lot of media companies there, a lot of agencies there, very few, if any, marketers there. Um, so the, the marketers' voice has been missing from the dialogue of what needs to happen from a measurement capabilities perspective to enable them to succeed. And, it, and it's obviously in agency and media companies' interest for them to succeed. They're funding everybody's, you know, businesses. Um, so it's really the first time in, in, in a long time where the marketers are stepping up and saying, we need to own the measurement roadmap. We, there are specific things we need 
Um, and and we're going to control that. And and between what's gone on in terms of a pilot in the UK and and a pilot that's soon to be executed in the US, they're doing it. Um, you know, the hope is that this has legs and that in a couple of years, this will be, um, you know, data that it really affects the way the market transacts. I mean, look, when, when we were at Turner, you know, I was in th- intimately involved in Nielsen's attempt to measure cross-platform. Um, the marketers were not a part of that dialogue. So when I, I was deciding based on our own parochial benefits yep. uh, or lack of lack thereof, so I, I think because the marketers understand um, how important it is for them to have the right data and tools to succeed with their marketing strategies and execution. Um, and also one of the things that's been interesting is they also talk a lot about some of the things we've talked about, like linear TV and accept, excessive frequency, right? They understand that if you've seen the message 20 times, the 21st message isn't a benefit. If anything, it detracts from the brand image. Like, stop telling me about, you know, pick your brand, Geico, Insurance, any of those brands. Um, so, yeah, I'm a little I'm more optimistic now that this really has some legs. And, um, you know, when you read about the marketers who are involved, it's Proctor, it's MasterCard. I mean, it's, it's the marketers that carry weight to actually move a market. You referenced the uh, the high frequency before. Um, you just made me realize uh, Discovery Plus. I'm not sure if you guys are you know watch any of their any of their brands. Uh, this past February, I was watching a lot of HGTV and, and Food Network, and I was blown away by the amount of you know cross promotion for for Discovery Plus. Literally every commercial break, yeah, probably either started with it or ended with it, and they certainly had it on on screen as I was watching shows with bugs and scrolls and it whatnot. But I mean, the marketer inside me was like, I had to take my hat off and give them a little, a little. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I was impressed. I was impressed. But 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 they wasted a lot of inventory, right? Yeah, but I mean, I also found it interesting, like how they all have different um, propositions. Like Discovery Plus was all about the amount of hours of content that you're getting um, for four ninety nine, which is all about price point and and volume versus you know the message that Paramount Plus is taking to the marketplace right now. So I just I can I can talk about that stuff for a long time, and and then we'll just go over over our schedule time. But more importantly, guys, um, Howard, you know what I'm about to ask you. So let's let's talk about the New York Rangers, your team. When are they going to hold the Stanley Cup next? Is it this season? Is it in the future? And why can't my Washington Capitals uh, seemingly be able to beat you guys? We lose every time we play. Well, no, we split this weekend. The Rangers did it. Yeah, but I think you've taken like three or four so far this season, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, who knows? Um, I have a grandson, so maybe he'll get to see the Rangers carry the Stanley Cup in his lifetime. (laughs) Greater chance than I. Hey, they have a good young team. You know, and, you know, hopefully they don't do anything dumb and stay the course. And a couple of years from now, they're they're a contender. I, I like the path they're on. Um, guys, I, I loved working with you. I think, Michael, you referenced that earlier, um, how much we all enjoyed working at Turner back in the day. And that day wasn't that long ago. But clearly much has changed in this in this, not only in our own careers, but certainly within the, the marketplace. And for what it's worth, I still think very, very fondly of my time at, at Turner and, and particularly just the partnership that I had with both of you guys. So it, I was very excited to have you on today. I really appreciate 
your time and your thoughts um, and more importantly, your insights on, on what's happening. And hopefully we could do this again. It's our pleasure. So good to see you again, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Dennis. This was great. All right, guys. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Everybody, thanks for listening. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode and we'll talk to you then. Thanks, guys.